0: The When Dating Hurts podcast is sponsored by Nom, Nom. I'm a big advocate for better food for pets. When they eat healthier, they live healthier. And Nom Nom's food for dogs is full of fresh proteins a dog loves and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. Nom, Nom meals are pre-portioned for your dog's exact caloric needs. So it's the easiest way to take the guesswork out of feeding your dog the best. Just tell them about your pup, age, breed, weight, allergies, and protein preferences. Get fresh, pre-packaged, totally nutritious meals delivered directly to your door for even less. Order Nom Nom today. Go to trynom.com slash when dating hurts and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping. And Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. That means if your dog doesn't love each meal, Nom Nom will refund your first order. Nom Nom is real good food for your dog. Head to TryNom.com slash When Dating Hurts. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter Kristen and all women taken from us too soon by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. In this episode, I am being interviewed by Scott Johnson of the What Was That Like? National Podcast. It's an honor to be asked by Scott to do this, and here it is.
1: I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? For my guest today, Bill, life was good. He and his wife had two children, David in high school and Kristen, who had just graduated from college and was about to start a career. But then Bill got a phone call. It was from a woman who identified herself as a police detective. The phone call was about Bill's daughter. I'd like for those listening to this to have an idea of who Kristen was and what she was like. Can you just tell us about your daughter, Kristen?
0: You know, I almost feel like I have to start off by saying that, that she was 21 years old when she died and i hate to start at that spot but when i think of her the first thing i think of her is that she's not physically with us so i start there but what kind of a person was she in life she was very smart she was extremely creative loved to write loved to make things liked to do photography she loved to love to write poetry she would write little stories and things like that she wasn't the type of person too who would write a write a poem in high school or or college and then come running to us and say, hey, look what I wrote. She would write it. And then sometimes you would just kind of find it later. Or she'd write something in high school and you'd find it in the yearbook. So you would kind of sometimes trip upon these things. But she was fun. She had a a really nice sense of humor. I mean, just kind of refreshing, real bright spot in people's lives. Uh, You know, I mean, I think sometimes, unfortunately, you find out afterwards that how many people loved her. Uh, She loved her family. She was loyal to friends. She rode horses. She played the flute, went to college on a scholarship while she was there, won a job with General Mills, and she had not quite gotten to the point of starting there. Very cute, very attractive. I mean, just really, the, as I say, the full package, Scott. I mean, she, she, she was one of those persons that if I walked into a room, she was there, I'd say, wow, she really, she really makes, makes a statement. And yet it was my daughter, too.
1: When this happened, you were a family of four, yes. your wife, Michelle, your two kids, Kristen and David. Can you give us kind of an overview? Of what was going on in your lives at that time? The kids, uh, and how old were the kids?
0: Kristen was 21, and David at the time was 17. And they were always very good together. There was barely ever a hint of sibling rivalry. They were so great together, a lot of fun on vacations, especially. But at that particular time, my son was finishing his junior year, just had gotten a week or two before, just had gotten his junior ring or his, uh, his ring, high school ring. So we, there was that. He is, was the most valuable player on his JV tennis team. So we're celebrating that. Here she is right at the end of college and graduating, going to start at General Mills in July. I mean, we're kind of, we're a family of four and so many things that we felt we invested so much time in our hearts and in some cases too, you know, financially invested in these two children was really paying out now. You know, we are really seeing it. It's kind of like all those things that you tried to accomplish were coming true. And, you know, then you get a call one evening. Kristen was going to college. At St. Joseph's University, just outside of Philadelphia. She was in food marketing and she had won a job with General Mills. We live just outside of Baltimore. So the day of her graduation, we got in our we we took a couple of cars because after the graduation, my wife was going to get together with Kristen and go to the Atlantic Ocean or Ocean City, Maryland, to be precise. So they were going to go there. My wife is a school teacher. She was out of school at that point. They were going to go there for kind of a long weekend. And my son was still in high school and I was working. So anyway, we took two cars up there and we went to the graduation. And so I remember when I first saw her, we pulled up and she had, a, had an apartment. She was outside and, and it was just kind of like um, a beautifully lit scene in a movie where it's morning, she's going to graduate in a few hours, pulled up and I wasn't sure it was her at first. Had this beautiful dress on at that point. Of course, she had to put on the graduation gown and all that mortarboard business and everything. But but I thought, putting it into words, a person who never looked more radiant, happy, somebody who was so proud of what she had done. You know, she was so ready. And so, you know, we kind of joined together and went over to... The, the whole graduation part of it, which was under a great big white tent. We had to sit there for hours. It was May 14th, and although it was only in the low 80s, it felt like in the mid to high 90s. But she graduated. She came out for that, and then after that ceremony, met with her best friend at the time, who's a young woman named Samantha, and also met her boyfriend at that time. Now, she was 21. He was 27 or 8, so that was kind of a new thing but she introduced us and when i met him focused on him now because i was so focused on her shook his hand like a teletype through my mind where was this thought these precise words ran through my mind is wow i'd never want to tangle with this guy so here i'm just meeting him and i'm thinking i could picture myself Duking and out with this guy.
1: Not a good first impression.
0: No. No. And I I probably only had that feeling a few times in my life, but that's not a common thing, you know, for me to meet somebody and and less at least go to that place. You know, I may say, wow, that guy's strong or that guy's tall or whatever it is, I don't know, dresses nicely, could be anything, but I'm like, I pictured myself being in some kind of a confrontation with this guy. So that was that was a premonition I should have followed up somehow, I guess. But
1: Yeah, but it's so easy to dismiss that thinking, I don't even know this guy. Why would I why would I think that?
0: Oh yeah. Oh I, yeah, I'd be the first person to discount my feelings in a case like that. It's like, boy, what are you thinking about? You know, I'm I wasn't, I wasn't focused on what's wrong with him. I just figured what's wrong with me. But kind of sliding off of that, still kind of waiting around on a parking lot and and saying hi to Samantha. And then Kristen's other friend, her best friend from high school came up for this. Her name was Felicity. And we're still in touch with both Samantha and Felicity even now, still very close with them. Took a lot of digital pictures, uh, just all different combinations of of Kristen and this guy. Then he actually had a new camera, a new digital camera. He took a picture of the four of us, meaning my wife and I, Kristen and David. And he and I even had emails the following week because we were exchanging the pictures I took and the pictures he took. But that was kind of graduation day. And there was some tension going on with Kristen and this guy even then. I had no idea what it was. But I said to my wife, and then I said to Kristen, look, if he wants to come with us when we go get something to eat after this, you know, maybe have him come. And, And Kristen didn't want to do that. So I was actually okay with that. I'd rather it be the four of us to just be the core group, but.
1: Right. That day, that, that time is about her anyway. You're celebrating her accomplishment.
0: Yeah. And, you know, she was in Philadelphia, so it wasn't like we were seeing her constantly. It was a real catch up time. And Michelle was going to continue on with Kristen to Ocean City, Maryland. But David and I then would kind of say good night and kisses and hugs and all. And we were heading back to the Baltimore area to kind of go back to what we were up to. So here you kind of come off the elation of that, you know, you're exchanging pictures and Kristen had left me this one voicemail a couple days after the graduation, just talking and just going on and on about a camera she also received, which she didn't really use that day, but she was using it and downloading pictures. And this was a whole new thing for her to have a digital camera. So that was, that was, a, that was her favorite graduation present. She took a lot of pictures over the next three weeks or so. The key to this is that exactly 20 days after that graduation day, on a rainy Friday, June 3rd, 2005, I was with my parents that evening at a restaurant near here, again, Baltimore area. My wife and son were separately closer to Washington at a a graduation party for some friend's son who just graduated from high school. I got a call. After I left my parents at this restaurant and said goodnight, they went home. Got a call from a detective who handled it very professionally, but the key was she needed to tell me something and could not tell me over the phone. I got a detective calling me, what's this all about? And I was like, what is is this? Who are you? Well, they've already been to the house. No one was there, of course. They had to tell me something. It had to be in person. So... That was a lot to swallow driving along in the rain with your wipers going. And I pulled off, got this detective's number and said, I need to call you back. Called my wife, who was at this graduation party, told her what was going on. She asked me, is this about Kristen? And I said, what on earth? Why would this be about Kristen? These are local detectives and all. So I wound up meeting them at a at a giant grocery store near home. I didn't want to meet them at my front door because you can't be sure who it's going to be, you know in a situation like that, but met there. And then, you know, that's kind of when you're handed a parent's worst nightmare. She wanted me to sit in her car and tell me this thing that she couldn't tell me over the phone. And I said, no, let's do it here by the automatic doors. And with my back up against a Gatorade container right by the big windows, you know, with all the sale signs and stuff at a grocery store. And I said, no, just tell me here. And she said, your daughter, Kristen, was murdered today by her boyfriend. That set us off on a whole new trajectory in life, never to recognize most parts of our lives again at that point. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020. It was followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two versions were out there in the world, informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. You can find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now. So it was really on me once I got the gist of that which I understood immediately. I I can understand what that means. I I just pictured my life from that point on. All the things that were that we were counting on that would just never happen. The birthdays and the Christmas and holiday get-togethers and her getting married to some Great guy, presumably, and having kids. I mean, just all these things. I just felt like I was watching a circuit box with the switches being snapped off. Then, while I was back in my own car driving home, which was a short distance, my wife, who is still at this party, calls me back and says, well, what did you find out from this detective? You know, I'd called her and said, I got this call. And she said, well, you know, is it Kristen? And now all of a sudden, I know it is. And I somehow didn't give her any details, but she said, we're coming home right now. And I said, well, yeah, you probably should. My son and my wife came to the house. I called my parents who I'd just seen at the restaurant and asked them to come to the house and found a way to say, you know, I'll tell you when you get there what's going on and sat them in the living room. And and then I had to kind of like send their lives off you know, to the same place mine had been for about 45 minutes to an
1: hour. I can't imagine being tasked with telling the family that news.
0: Yeah, and I've looked back on that many, many times, Scott, and I really think I was I was really chosen for that job. The fact that it was then, the fact that my wife and son were not home, I have no doubt it was put on me to pass the word to everybody else. And, and I, I'm not complaining at all. I I was the right person to carry that. I mean, I've carried the story from that June 3rd day to now. You know, here you are on a kind of a, as it turns out, kind of a cool Mm. June 3rd evening in the rain, and then knowing that you're facing a whole different life when that sun comes up tomorrow, and it came up strong. It was a hot, hot June 4th Saturday morning, and somehow we had the clarity to start to push through all kinds of phone calls, whether it's telling people what's going on or making appointments for funeral homes and at cemeteries, but we were we were in the car, and the three of us were going, Michelle David and I, and you have a feelings of just wow, complete disbelief. you feel like you just saw her I mean this now was twenty-one days ago, but still disbelief, stress, pressure, horror, anger shock. And then on top of it, seriously praying for guidance. I mean, just don't let me forget something. Don't let me miss something. Somebody out there tell me what to do between friends and family and just thoughts coming to our minds to act upon.
1: Yeah. It's not like you had any practice in how to do all
0: this. Yeah. We didn't have cemetery plots all ready to go. You know, at that very same time, my parents had their plots in the military section of this one cemetery, and they were all paid for. It's just not that everybody's ready, but you're definitely not ready for your college graduate daughter to be to be buried. Those first days were just all about getting ready for the funeral and people showing up at the house, this flow of people calling and showing up and bringing food, more people brought more food. I tell you you know it was it was every time you opened the door it was a ham or something
1: that's what people know how to do right
0: yeah god bless them i mean they were they were doing everything they could to help or bring comfort so you know i'm not complaining you know but it it became like well where will we put that why am i thinking about that but in the meantime you know it's not like somebody it's not like somebody had a heart attack and then they bring them to this area and we do a funeral i mean in this case my daughter's body is in the philadelphia area held as evidence you know, to track down the guy that did it and to, to connect what, what he actually literally did to the person, because they've got to be very careful. They're pretty obvious. I mean, he stabbed her to death. It's pretty obvious what he did, but they want to be sure this doesn't go sideways somehow, you know, that somehow he turns this into a different story. The medical examiner who, met, who examined her is the same person who examined him, which is kind of interesting because he presented at a hospital on June 3rd morning. He, he attacked her around 3 a.m., but he himself presented at a hospital around 9 a.m., claiming that he was in a fight with his girlfriend, and that's why he was there because he had a number of injuries himself. Now, the medical examiner's point of view of that and detectives working mm-hmm. the case was that he did all of this to himself. He wanted to make it look like she attacked him and it was self-defense. That was, that was what he was pushing for. And that's why that he attacked her at 3 a.m., but it took until 9 a.m. for him to get to a hospital because he was trying to work at his story. And he was inf- inflicting injuries on himself with a knife at the same time. We went to three different funeral homes first. And the first two just were, they were just so dreary. Now the circumstances were were dreary, of course, but I mean this just made it worse. And the salespeople just were either cold or they handled it just like another job number on a job jacket or something. You know, they just didn't give you anything. And when we got to the third one, it was completely different. The place felt at least neutral, at least neutral to positive, and the guy who was the funeral director there, who handled every all of our needs, he totally got it. I mean, he understood the circumstances and he showed us the different rooms and told us you're going to need a big room because when somebody is this age, all of our high school friends will be here. All of your friends will be here. College friends, I don't care if they're in Philadelphia, they'll come down. And they did. They had a book where people were signing in and I guess the book ran out after 500 n- names or families or whatever that was. I mean, we, we stood at, we stood in the wake for over four hours. I think we went into the fifth hour. And finally, at one point, they said, we have to close this place.
1: That's that's the kind of person that you want to work with. He
0: was he was great. I, I don't know. I, I guess just it comes with practice, but also the type of person. But, but he knew how to do some hand-holding. You know, I mean, the sun comes up that day, Scott, and we go to these other funeral homes. We go with this guy. We talk about things. And then one of the most bizarre things is go down this flight of steps downstairs to the casket showroom. I mean, that's really what it was like. It was like a new car showroom for caskets. My wife had said, well, I don't think, I think Kristen would like a white one. I don't think she would want one of these dark ones or a dark wooden one. And I, and I remember thinking, it's so bizarre to have a conversation about what kind of a casket my daughter would like. That first day was was really like um, being a, a pinball because it was calls that I was making or getting from the apartment complex where it happened, speaking with law enforcement officers, trying to pick through some pieces, and they were very forthcoming. They were helpful. I'm talking with relatives, coworkers, friends. Very soon after that, newspaper reporters, and you just I think this tends to happen to dads more than anybody else in the family, but you just want as many. Details as possible of what led up to this and what actually happened, and where's this guy now, and what is his story, maybe you just want it to make sense at some point and and you just kind of know it really can't make sense and I was actually surprised as the days wore on how well we were handling it because we were all going at it very, very hard, but never really feeling exhausted. I mean, it would be. 10 or 11 at night, finally on Sunday night or Monday night. The funeral didn't happen until uh, Thursday, but we kept our minds pretty clear. We seemed to have this sense of now we need to do this. Oh, we need to call this person. We need to phrase it this way. All these things kept going on. Something we didn't really notice until some time later when we were talking about it with a friend, we had a lot of strange occurrences that week. We had as many as nine light bulbs that blew out in the house. From the time, from the day she was killed for the next seven days, I kept thinking, God, I got to get another light bulb and put it in that lamp over there. You know, then a few hours later, we go in some other room and some light would blow out. And it's like, God, I got to go get some more light bulb. It was ridiculous. But it was Mm -hmm. like these electrical things. And three of our four cars wouldn't start, wouldn't start for a day. And then the next day they'd start.
1: After that part, that, that chapter... The funerals over, and you're just back to living life. You you actually had to go back to work.
0: Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, so I was out of I was out of there. I guess really, I think it was just two full weeks. I, I say that like it wasn't very long, but that's actually I think pretty long. I was out of there for a couple of weeks, and when I came back in, there was one person in particular who said to me. That a lot of people there thought I'd never come back to work. They thought, I guess, I guess they thought I'd be so shattered by what took place that I'd be dysfunctional. I guess they presumed the rest of my life. So that was eye opening. And I said, Well, I can't say I'm fine, but I never occurred to me that I'm going to quit the business. I was in advertising then as a creative guy. So it was, you know, it's kind of like you don't know me very well if you think that, I mean, this was a big thing, but I still have a lot of living ahead of me you know i just have this other major side project that my mind is working on which which in that case is dealing with the loss of your older child you know some people they lose a child and and it's horrible and the child is buried and they have to maybe they got to figure out their own path on how to get through grieving and time passing and all the denials and anger and all the things you go through in our case it wasn't like that at all it was Well, we still have to get this guy into prison, you know, at least as much as we can. There's this whole other incredibly important thing, this project that has to take place and has to unfold. And, you know, we didn't have that playbook either in our hands when she was killed. I didn't know what happens next. I mean, that led to a preliminary hearing and formal arraignment and all these other phone calls and twists and turns. And, you know, the When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by BlendJet. Big bulky blenders are a real pain to use, but the BlendJet 2 blender makes blending a snap. I'm using mine several times a day. Convenience is the reason why. The BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It can fit into your cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. And BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. BlendJet lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement any style. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Seriously, what are you waiting for? No other blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Head to BlendJet.com and use the promo code WENDATINGHURTS12 for your 12% off your order and free 2-day shipping. That's BlendJet.
1: Fortunately, you had someone who was very experienced and very invested in your case to take that through the whole process. We're not going to cover all the details of the court case and everything. That's in your book, which we'll talk about shortly. You mentioned that you've had some pretty vivid dreams that included Kristen. What kind of effect did that have on you?
0: For me, they're always, no matter what I'm dreaming about, they're always very real. I mean, I'm I'm really there and I'm not thinking, oh, I'm asleep, but I'm having the story playing along. So, so I'm really there. I'm really in that place. It's very three-dimensional. It's very colorful. In this one instance, I was at what you would probably call kind of a county fairgrounds. It was kind of eerie. It had the feeling of if there had been a county fair taking place all day, and that it and it was hot all day, and now it's the evening, maybe we're talking ten or eleven o'clock in the evening, but there's no one else around, and you just sort of see the bare bulbs strung in different places, maybe from building to building or something like that or on poles with a little breeze going and crickets and things and it's just me, and there's a little bit of dust blowing around your feet and then I Then I see this young woman walking towards me, kind of a flowing white dress, summer dress, and it's Kristen. And she comes up and we're not saying very much, you know, it's kind of understood, wow, you know, it's, it's so great, it's so great under the circumstances to see you is what I'm trying to put out to her. And she gets it. And I slowly but surely come to realize that she knows what's going on, which is that it's a dream. But then I catch on. And for probably most people, when you start to catch on, even though it's like wonderful and we're there and I'm looking at her and her blonde hair is blowing and the dress is kind of moving and You're there together, but as soon as you realize it's a dream, it starts to dial out. You know, it starts to fade. She becomes transparent, but it was just wonderful. And it was, it was as much as I could tell as real. I mean, like it really did happen. I mean, it's almost like she came and visited me at night, you know? And I mean, like in my own, you know, place where I was sleeping. But then it's kind of over and she kind of smiles and turns and she kind of walks off from where she came from. But it was wonderful. I mean, it was there was nothing but a great feeling of spending time with someone you cared so much about. And knowing that she was okay. honestly. That was a big part of it, because when you lose somebody like that, no matter where they are whether they're whether she's in this room with me right now talking to you Scott which is possible in some way she could be but you want to know they're okay that they're not they're not uncomfortable they're not in pain and i really do believe that that she is okay and and that was that was really kind of informing me i don't know how many dreams i've had about her but i've had some other ones that were that were kind of quick you know that where she was there and she was still very three-dimensional there's one where she visited my wife and me at, at of all places some motel or someplace and she spent time with us again not a whole lot of dialogue but still a really strong connection one of the ones I had right before I put the book out a year and a half ago was pretty amazing because I was in some marketplace and it was sunny and the wind's blowing around, a whole lot of people, hustle and bustle. And in the midst of it, I see somebody, like you see this in like Indiana Jones movies or something, where there's all these people crossing the camera, but the camera's looking and you see one person in particular who's coming right to you. And I realize, in the midst of it, this sure looks a lot like Kristen. But when she got to me, it was Kristen, when she got to me, it wasn't the teenager Kristen. It wasn't the 21-year-old. It was a representation of Kristen had she lived. I mean, it was like at that time I wrote the book, it was like the 36- or 7-year-old Kristen. I mean, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was like some, some screenwriter put her dialogue in there at that point, And the storyline was that she didn't die that night it was that that she had been she had been saved by a fast acting detective and that in the philadelphia area now this is this is all created in my mind but that in the philadelphia area there was a team of doctors who were always on standby for cases like this of people who were near death or people who had died in slightly came back, and that they saved her. But she was in such rough shape from what this guy had done to her that it had taken all this time to rehab her to the point where she physically and more so emotionally could return to life with people around. It was, it was amazing. And at the end of the dream, all I wanted to do was to get her back and reintroduce her to her mother and, and David. But I mean, that was seriously—that's as real as me sitting talking to you right now.
1: Sometimes I think it's—it's it's almost cruel how vivid dreams can be when it's something that we want so badly, and then we've got to wake up. Yeah, it's not—it's the, not there. Yeah, when you're talk when you're talking about that, it reminded me of the lyrics to a Tom Petty song. I don't know if you've heard this or not. It's one of his hit songs, but one of the lines is. God, it's so painful when something that's so close is still so far out of reach. Oh,
0: uh, wow. yeah, yeah. yeah. you could almost touch it, but yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough tease, no doubt about it. it's a big it's a big tease.
1: I want to hear the story of the locket. Can you take us through what happened then?:
0: The locket story, uh, you know, if, if somebody were to go to my website, or if somebody were to get the book, they'll see immediately how I liberally use a golden locket as the main visual. And so, when you when you see the book, you'll see the words "When Dating Hurts." You'll see the locket there, and you won't get it. You couldn't possibly get it, but you will get it if you read the book. You know, or if you, well, of course, you'll get it now just by listening to the story. So what happens is this. If you go to the night of Kristen's wake, now the wake took place. Sometimes people call that a visitation, but it's the opportunity to come and see the family and offer condolences, say a few words. And that was the night where we had just so many hundreds of people. My wife and I received and my son and my grandparents received there that night. Even though my daughter was attacked and stabbed and slashed, you know, she was made very presentable in an open casket. People could see her that night. It was not closed casket. The night of that, Kristen was laid out and we were receiving people. Now, in the meantime, one of my daughter's high school teachers, her name is Patricia. Patricia came there that night from home. She actually came to the back of the funeral home. You know, Somebody let her in. And she was on kind of a mission and her job was to seek out michelle my wife to seek out michelle's closest friend because she wanted to share something with her the when dating hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020 it was followed soon after by the ebook version while those two versions were out there in the world informing about dating violence in early 2021 i launched the when dating hurts podcast now, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. You can find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now. Patricia then caught up with Donna, one of my wife's very closest friends, and wanted to tell her a story of something that had happened to her. Patricia had lost two daughters four years earlier and lost them, and this is like just horrible thing, lost her two daughters at the same time when their car, which was at the University of Maryland, a storm was rolling in, kind of a hurricane, but sometimes hurricanes have tornadoes in the midst of them, in the middle of them. And the car that these two young women were in, one was a one was a senior, I think the other was either a freshman or, or a sophomore, but the car was was literally picked up and flung over an eight-story dormitory onto a highway down below. Obviously, both instantly killed. So she lost both of her daughters. And- Friends and family had the presence of mind to present her with a locket on each one of the girls' birthdays as they came along. So she had these two precious lockets, and the lockets had pictures of the girls in them. And in each case, one locket would have a picture of the girl who was killed, the daughter, and then Patricia in there, and then also a lock of that girl's hair. So she had a gold one and a Mm -hmm. silver one. So she came with these two and she showed them to Donna, Michelle's friend, and said, I know that tonight is the wake and I know that tomorrow is the funeral and burial. So I needed to get here because it's tonight or never. But if you wanted to have a locket created, this is the only opportunity for you to snip some hair, save it, and then see about getting a locket made. Once she delivered that, Pat was out of there. So Donna waited till the end of the evening when people were busy looking at other things and she snipped some of Kristen's hair, put it in an envelope. Put it in her handbag and held on to it. A month later, she went to a jeweler, and his name is Kevin Welsh. And she told him about this story about her friend's daughter, Kristen, and what happened. You know, that she was attacked one night while breaking up with her boyfriend and was stabbed to death. And he's listening to the story, and he becomes particularly emotional about this abusive relationship and this girl who gets killed. In the meantime, Donna didn't know that Kevin was dating someone. and was kind of at the end of dating this person, but the person he was dating. Now, this is a 41-year-old guy, never married, handsome guy, dating someone. And that relationship, as it turns out, was also abusive, meaning like this woman was abusive to him and at times was threatening. And it even said to him at one time, before Donna showed up that day, had said, I'll tell you one thing, if you ever break up with me, I'll probably stab you to death. Now he has this story that walks in his door with Donna, wanting to get a locket made, which he would eventually do. And it's like, oh my God, this girl's story is here to warn me about what can happen to me. So he thought of Kristen as his angel protector, is what he, he referred to her as, trying to warn him, you better be careful because what happened to me could happen to you. He's trying to deal with his girlfriend, and she has already threatened him, but sometimes they get together, it's okay, but there's just something off about her, and it seems to be getting worse. In the meantime, she is texting him, and she is calling him pretty much incessantly, and he's trying to figure out what to do, because he figures now for sure if he breaks up, she's going to show up at some point, and she's going to get him. So he goes ahead, and he works on the locket. Now, he's got to get lockets in. Donna has to pr- approve one. He's got photos of Kristen and her mother, Michelle. He's going to put one on each side of the locket as it opens. And then in the middle, there's a little glass oval window, and that's where he'll put a lock of Kristen's hair. So he's kind of working on it, and it's all aiming towards about two months later. He's got plenty of time when Kristen's birthday is coming along August 24th of that year. So he keeps getting these phone calls. He keeps getting these text messages harassed from this woman. And he realizes as much as he doesn't want to change his phone number because it's his personal and business phone number, he doesn't want to change it. But he's at the point now he has no choice because this woman won't stop. And he keeps telling her, you know, I I really think, you know, we're kind of done here. And, you know, I, I don't know if we can go on seeing each other or any of that stuff. He keeps trying to be out of town and miss her and everything else. Anyway, he gets the locket done. It's almost August 24th. He tells Donna that it's finished. And, if you want to come over, she said, I'll come over and pick it up or my husband will pick it up. And he said, look, let's do this. I need to drive towards your house anyway, but I also, I need to stop at a Verizon store because I need to do something there. And she goes, well, look, I'll have Brad just meet you there. So they meet at noon at the Verizon store. He's going to take care of the cell phone. He hands the locket over to Brad, the husband. He drives off, loves the locket and everything. He leaves to go take it to Donna. Kevin goes, Kevin Welsh goes into the Verizon store and he finds out that if you want to change your phone number, you don't do it in the store. Just call this number and they'll take care of it. He goes, oh, great. He drives back to his jewelry store. He's sitting in the lot. He calls Verizon, goes through it, and they say, "Okay, you know, we can do that right here. So he gets his number changed. He writes it down. He, He gets his new number for him. About a month passes And I don't want to go into all the technical parts of it, but the kicker is that I was curious, based upon months earlier, having Kristen's self-physical cell phone in my possession, I was curious about any last voicemail messages or anything that was on there. And I did manage to download any voicemail messages, and, and I recorded them all just for posterity. And once I did that, I realized I no longer needed my wife and I. You know, we don't know we don't need this line. You know, we don't need her her phone number. So way back in June, we had her number retired, so to speak. And I had asked them at the time when they retire a number, what actually happens, and they said, well, as soon as we get off the phone, that number's shut down, and it's put in retirement, so to speak, or suspension for two months, but then. Rough, you know, two months from now, practically to the day, it'll kind of come back out and someone else will get it. So it's like, okay, well, that's fine. Anyway, I was able to discover that Kristen's number that was retired or suspended in late June of 2005 came back out in late August of 2005 when Kevin Welsh got his number changed purely coincidentally He wound up with Kristen's phone number. Here's the guy who has this abusive relationship going on, needs to get his number changed. And of all the numbers that could possibly go back out that day around that time, but that precise second. The guy who had such a connection to this girl who was murdered by her boyfriend, he winds up with her number totally
2: I don't even know if you call it a coincidence. I mean, it just, that's what it was.
1: How did you realize, or eventually come to realize that he got her number?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. So So what happened was this. There was a day, let me do the chronology just quickly again. She was killed in June. Donna went to Kevin Welsh at the jewelry store to get the locket going in July of 2005. In August of 2005 is when the locket was given to Donna, who then gave it to Michelle, by the way, on Kristen's birthday, August 24th, and then a month after that... There's something called a formal arraignment, and that was in Philadelphia. My wife and I were in Philadelphia for that. And that's when they bring in the guy that did it, the murderer, and they tell him point blank, here's literally what you're charged with. First degree murder, third degree murder, possession of an instrument you know, of crime or that could kill somebody, different things like that. One of the, well, one of the things I did was there were two voicemails on my phone. And I would listen to them from time to time. They were both from Kristen. I was able, phones were very different in 2005 than now. But in those days, through hitting a series of buttons, you could get the information as to when the call happened, how long the call was, who it was from, different things like that. But I'd listen to Kristen's messages, and then I'd also hit the buttons that would tell me when these were, just to reinforce. I sort of already knew. But this one time I hit it, instead of saying that the call was made from Kristen's phone it said the call was made from a phone from a guy named kevin welsh and i didn't know who that was you could hit a different button you can call back whoever left the voicemail so i called back got his voicemail message you know this is kevin welsh sorry i'm not here right now and i left the message and i said you know my name is bill mitchell my daughter's name is Kristen. i know you don't know me but you might know my daughter I'm wondering if somehow she may have left a message from your phone, even though I knew it couldn't, I just hadn't heard about this guy. I left that message. Please call me back if you get a chance. We're driving back from the Philadelphia area courthouse to Baltimore, and my phone starts ringing. But when my phone starts ringing, you know, you could even in 2005, assign a ringtone to specific people. You could, you know, it could be a siren, could be anything, could be a bird chirping. And it was giving the ringtone as if Kristen was calling me, someone who had passed away months ago. And I'm driving the car at that time, and my wife's saying, Why aren't you answering the phone? And I said, Because that's Kristen's ringtone. So when I answered that phone, it could have been Kristen on the other end. I didn't know what was going to happen or some cruel trick. But all of a sudden, it's this deep voiced guy named Kevin Welsh. And it's like, what is this? So he described who he was. And he said he was a jeweler in the Baltimore area, told me where his shop was. And I realized, wait a minute. I think I've been to your shop, which I had been one time based upon a recommendation from this Donna. And I said, did you make a locket for a young woman who was killed? Did you make a locket for Donna? And he said, yeah, I just gave it to her three or four weeks ago. I said, oh, my God. I said, somehow you've got my daughter's cell phone number. If you've ever had shockwaves go through your system, me, my wife, and Kevin Welsh on the other end of the line, it was right then. I mean, it was just like, (laughs) I cannot believe. And I didn't even know the story of the girlfriend at that time. When we finally caught up with him, we found out about the girlfriend situation. So that's why he changed the number and everything. But yeah, he got Kristen's phone number and he and I are friends for life. I call him brother Kevin and I'm brother Bill to him and when I go to call Kevin, I still see him and talk to him a lot. He's participated in a lot of parts of our life, but when I go to call him on my phone, it actually still says Kristen next to the phone number. I, I never changed it to Kevin, but I know it's Kevin's number. Pretty incredible.
1: It is. It's a, it's completely incredible. Well, you mentioned Kristen's voicemail that you had kept and and listened to and that's one of the ways you stay connected in some way with her hey guys Kristen. um i got your message it is about 10 20 on wednesday morning and i'm at the new apartment
2: it's beautiful um there's a lot of stuff to be put away and a lot of stuff to be done but i did get your message from last night and obviously things were a little hectic like i was really tired and trying to put stuff away and whatnot Moving is quite an adventure. Um, but the movers were great and everything went really, really well. Nothing got broken. They packed everything like wrapped in paper in boxes, which is crazy. Like, they did a really good job. So, um, give me a call back. I love you. I guess you're at work. I'll talk to you later. Dad. Bye.
1: What goes through your mind when you listen to that voicemail message?
0: It's, uh, it's a connection to better times. It's a connection, obviously, to the living Kristen. Um, it's a connection to her whole life from August 24th, 1983, when she was born, you know, all through her life. I mean, I, I see that, just all those pictures all lined up and all the moments and all those different things. I, don't, I never feel bad listening to them. I feel, feel good listening to them she's talking about being in this new apartment of hers and you know she was just very happy she was about ready to start her job and she still had lots of friends and you know we didn't appreciate we didn't know or appreciate at that time that she was having all kinds of difficulty with this overly controlling dominant boyfriend situation she didn't tell us about that and her friends were aware of it but but we didn't know but for the most part i feel i feel very good i mean my wife Had a number of voicemail messages on her phone. But she was very good at listening to them, getting the gist and then kind of taking them off because in those days you were kind of you had limited storage. And so I might get rid of every other one I had, but I didn't get rid of those. And then eventually recorded them, of course, so that they would never get away.
1: Right. Now you've got them forever. Right. Sure. Kristen's brother, David, four years younger. Right. This happened when he was just a young teenager, and I know he and Kristen had a very special and close relationship. For a lot of kids, it seems like this, would, this could be something that would just break them for life. But And not that David doesn't still feel pain of losing his sister, but his perspective on this is really inspiring. So I want to take a minute here and hear from David. And we should tell people, you've written a book about this whole experience, which is about to be an audiobook. book. And uh, matter of fact, by the time this episode gets released, it may be out in audiobook form. Yes, it should be. What we're about to hear is the chapter that David wrote to get his perspective on how he responded to what happened.
2: I'm David, Kristen's brother. On the morning of June 4th, 2005... The day after I found out that my sister had been suddenly torn from our lives in an unthinkable manner, I experienced a moment of personal revelation that was critical in shaping my outlook on both my family's tragedy and on life itself. I decided to share it in this book in the hopes that it may help others coping with their own personal crises and tragedies, in whatever form they may come. My parents were in the funeral director's office attempting to iron out the details of the wake, funeral, and burial. The news was still fresh. Our emotions were still raw and unpredictable, and our grasp on the reality of the situation was shaky at best. The ways into the meeting, the funeral director asked us, Do you think you would prefer a casket made of wood or of metal? I don't mean this as a criticism of the funeral director. He was truly compassionate, professional, and did an excellent job for us. But subjectively, in that moment, the question felt utterly absurd and unanswerable to me. It was like your house had just burned down and the cleanup crew was asking if you preferred that they send a red truck or a blue truck to haul away the wreckage. I think the contrast of what seemed like such a trivial decision against the backdrop of a life-altering new reality really struck a chord in me. Feeling that the collapse of my emotional house of cards was imminent, I walked out of the room, left the building, and landed on a concrete bench outside, and the emotional release that followed was intense, and it was complete. I cried for my sister, I cried for my family, and I struggled through involuntary gasps for air in between outpourings of sorrow and pain. I don't know if this went on for one minute, five minutes, or ten minutes, but a horrifying new thought gradually crept over me. I wasn't worried about Kristen. I believed she still existed, just in a different way now, and the pain she endured at the very end was over. But what about my parents and me? I began for the first time to come to the realization that this was a turning point in our lives. Things would never be the same. Was this the end of any semblance of a happy, fulfilling life? Was this the beginning of a dark new reality where life would be nothing but a sad, empty, deformed version of what it once was? the life that my parents would have to live for another 30 or 40 years, that I would have to live from the age of 17 until the end of my miserable life. Just about as soon as those thoughts filled my head with a future of misery and hopelessness, they were met with equal and opposing force by a new thought that formed. It was my decision whether or not this event would bring about such a future. The darkness, the hopelessness were not certainties, Rather, they were only certain if I settled for the nearest, most obvious interpretation I could grasp of the event, namely that this was the beginning of the end. I decided in that moment not to settle for that. It was up to me to interpret what this event would mean for my life going forward. Furthermore, it was up to me to decide if I would be controlled by it or if I would find a way to become stronger as a result of it. Maybe I could even go a step further and find a way to harness its power, kind of like jujitsu become a better person, and live a more intentional life than I otherwise would have. I don't know if those thoughts came to me from Kristen, from a higher power, or from a lucky firing of neurons at just the right time in my brain, but they've been critical in shaping the trajectory of my life since that day. It actually only occurred to me now as I write this that what seemed like an absurd, trivial decision that I couldn't comprehend in the funeral director's office directly led to making perhaps the most important decision of my life, only a few moments later. We live in a world rife with judgment, canned narratives, and other noise. Maybe it's not so different than it's ever been in human history, but I tend to think that the deluge of entertainment media and the life-enveloping nature of social media have made it that much more difficult for us to think for ourselves and interpret the world independently. We're surrounded by simple narratives that are too easy to adopt as lenses for assessing our own lives. Bob got a new car. Great, fun, smiley, plus celebration emojis. Patty broke up with her boyfriend. Sad, aw, crying emoji. It's all too easy to view life through the lens through which you think the rest of the world would see it. Like, something terrible happened to me, so now my life must be terrible. Resist that interpretation. I don't pretend to think that every person facing a tragedy or a crisis can avoid pain and suffering. My family and I have suffered greatly. That being said, if you're one of these people, I urge you to believe that you have the authority to decide what it means in your life, even if simply to decide that it will not destroy you. That decision can have a powerful impact on the long-term severity of your suffering and the degree to which you can find happiness and fulfillment again one day. It did so for me.
1: David seems to have a wisdom that was beyond his years, you know, to have a, what a great outlook on that.
0: David, when he was even a little kid, and I mean like three, four, five years old, David was what some people referred to as an old spirit. I don't know if you've ever heard about that before, but it is. I mean, look, you know, when you've got somebody that's three years old who is, having these deep conversations with a priest about God and wanting to know more. I mean, I have pictures of him when he was maybe, I think all of like 10 or 11, sitting in a hammock with a minister after one of my cousins was married. And they're, they're in this swinging hammock. They must've been there the better part of an hour. But this man had been, I believe a Catholic priest Then he became kind of a minister of some description. And then he became like a Baha'i priest or minister. I'm not sure what they call them with that. but So David was just fascinated that this man had kind of moved from one thing to the next. And I mean, they're having this great conversation. And I walked up at one point and even said to this man, I said, you know, I know David's been here a long time. I mean, do you you need a break or something like that? He said, no, no, (laughs) we're good. We're good. Kind of waved me off like, get out of here, you know. This is not, this is not about you, but he's always been that guy. He's, he's a, he's a deep guy. And, and, you know, from that chapter that he added to the book that even at 17 years old, when he had, you know, that's what he's talking about, that even back then he looked at the situation and thought, this can crush me. This can change me in, in, in really detrimental ways or not. And I have to make a decision that I won't get swallowed up in this. There was a different time we talked. He and I talked about it. This is about four years after that Kristen was killed. And I asked him, I said, it felt like you distanced yourself from some of it. And he said, well, you and mom were doing such a good job of grieving and handling it all. I just thought, you know, I was 17, 18 years old back then. I still wanted to be a high school junior and senior. And I wanted to go to college and have a college life. And I didn't want to carry that. I didn't want to be known as the brother of a murdered sister all the time. I wanted to be me.
1: Yeah. He needs to have his own identity for sure. Right. So your book, it's already out. And like I said, the audiobook version might be out by now. You also now have a podcast where you talk to people and try to bring awareness to something that a lot of people aren't even familiar with, which is dating violence. Some of the episodes are with those who have actually survived this, where they tell their story. Can you talk a little bit about the podcast?
0: Well, you know w- what happened with this is that I put the book out, and that that was a big lift. took over four years to to kind of piece it together, and only really in the last year did I believe it would ever get done. And you know, it was it kind of started out as as articles, short articles, and then somebody at one point had the wisdom to say, "Why don't you stop writing these articles and just write the book?" So I made the book really a bunch of short chapters. Any one of them could be considered an article, but anyhow, they all kind of string together. The key to the book, and I think the podcast is this, is that that the book tells our journey from the night of the call from the detective up until about the time the book came out. But one of the key things about the book is the book at the end of it, and really the end meaning like the last 30 pages, really goes into the warning signs of an unhealthy relationship and the template that all abusers follow. You know, I'd never seen something like that before, but it gives all these insights into how to detect if this is going on, how to take action, how to be safe, you know, how to live through it, You know, which of course we know that not everybody lives through it. Once I got the book out, quite frankly, I felt like I had shipped my best friend away on an airliner and it was like, I kind of missed that. I missed the challenge and the putting together of it all. And then I thought about podcasts. I thought, well, you know, I could record a podcast this morning, edit it this afternoon, and upload it tonight. And I thought, I'd like to take some of the characters in the book and bring them to life so people can hear from them, which then led to bringing on domestic violence counselors, maybe going back and getting some of the law enforcement people who were involved in the case, which I've done maybe go and get mothers of victims and fathers of victims and end up survivors and then bringing actual survivors on. So I have male and female survivors on the podcast. I've got other people in the pipeline who are also... All of these people are just such real and such great people. The survivors are so courageous because... I mean, I'm listening to these people and it's all I can do to breathe sometimes listening to how horrifically they were were handled by someone who at some point in time claimed to love them. And then to see how they worked their way through it, how they found ways to cope, how they found ways to get out of that relationship, get it behind them. But I will tell you, my imagination never would have taken me to the places that a lot of these podcast episodes do they're so compelling. And I, and I think that in, in our, uh, my own way over here, you know, with uh, domestic violence, dating violence, that I really have the greatest ad- admiration for people who, who do this for a living and they don't get into it for the money, you know, professional domestic violence counselors. The one thing I can guarantee is they never get rich, but on the other hand, they're really actively bettering or even saving lives, bringing comfort,
1: yeah, sometimes the rewards of work are not just financial. That's the truth. If anyone went to your website, which is whendatinghurts.com, the links to everything are there as well. And you're right. A lot of the matter of fact, we've on, on this podcast, I've done a few episodes that have kind of dealt with this subject.
0: Yes, you have. And you did it well, by the way. It was interesting listening to some of yours because. Because you would start down a path or a, pres- a problem would be presented. And I was wondering how you'd handle it. And, and really, you went right where I would have gone. Yeah, you, you really under- you do understand this, uh, this whole issue. You really do.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah,
0: I mean that sincerely.
1: Bill, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. And I uh, hope your work continues because it's doing a lot of good.
0: Thank you. You know, I, I found out a long time ago that the best way I found to help me or to help us is by helping other people. I wouldn't say i figured that out i just kind of experienced that so to get up and give a talk let's say speeches and i and i have a lot of i I list every speech i've given every interview is is on the website to get up and give a talk and then afterwards you know you're trying to get your get your dvd back from the video you played and you're closing your computer and doing you know you're kind of a little bit tired and you've answered questions and all and you're just about out of there Inevitably, someone will come up and say, thank you so much because I went through one of these. and Or I've had people come up and say, I heard you speak here four years ago. And I just want to tell you that here's what I've done over the last four years since I heard you speak. And you hear these stories of how they were in rough shape or they were in a bad marriage. And now it's like the sun's come out, the clouds are gone, and they're happy. And they're with someone else or they're remarried or they're with nobody, but they're happy. That's the big jackpot for me.
1: Bill and I didn't talk a lot about the court case, but he did go through all that in detail in his book. The man who killed Kristen was convicted and sent to prison, where he'll hopefully be for a very long time. One of the things I really appreciate about Bill is that he's taken this horrible tragedy and turned it into something very positive. And it's a cause that continues to be helpful for a lot of people. I think that's something that would make Kristen very happy.
0: The When Dating Hurts podcast is growing steadily. Why is that? Analytics tell us it has to do with relevant content that listeners really want to hear. And in our case, we're talking about your daughters and sons. What could be more important or more interesting? Let me thank you for listening in and for asking friends and family to listen to. If you want to reach us, head to whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.